your Bibles to Genesis 32. And uh, if you are, let's see, if you've got the Pew Bible in front of you, we're going to be on page 27. If there is anything that we go over this morning or that we don't go over this morning and you have questions about the text, um, you can jump on slido.com, type in RevCDA, and text in your questions that we'll take a look at at the end. Uh, one more announcement that I have for us. Uh, I met with our landlord this week, and he uh, let me know that the uh, his plan to not renew our lease and do other things on Sunday mornings has changed, and he doesn't want us to leave. So uh, for the time being, we get to stay in this uh, venue on Sunday mornings. So uh, praise God for that, yeah. Um, so the, the exercise of, of looking around for new meeting space, I think, has been good. Uh, and, and we'll continue to try to seek the Lord as, as, for, as how he would have us um, navigate real estate and, and such. But the fact that the uh, end of May deadline is not happening is, is a real load off stress-wise for the elders, so I'm grateful for that. Um, that being said, let's, uh, let's pray and we'll get into it. Lord God, thank you for your word. Um, as we continue to uh, look through the story of Jacob and his struggle with you and his growth as one of your people, God, I just pray that we would uh, see ourselves in this story. Um, maybe see ourselves in different ways and in different parts at different times, but God, we are all um, in a relationship with you in some sense. And I just pray that you would um, give us wisdom as what, it, what does it look like to, to move to the next place, to get a little deeper in, a little further on. Um, as we see Jacob um, begin to be transformed, God, I pray that we would be people that are um, just zealous to be transformed by you. Uh, I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. A few times uh, throughout through the, the, the history of our body, I have shared some of my testimony, and I'm, I'm, we're not going to do all of it this morning, but a significant part of my story ha takes place in my 20s when I was um, an associate pastor uh, working for the Salvation Army and was um, uh, wrestling with the Lord about um, where should we go from here? What's the next step in our family's journey with Jesus and my uh, kind of vocational ministry. I was knocking on doors and I was going to school. And um, I, uh, at that time, very strongly heard the voice of God and not in a kind of out loud way, but in an internal way that there were some things in my life that I needed to sort out. Um, I had um, a history of sexual sin that I had kept from everyone that knew me and um, God said, you need to bring that out into the light or we're not going to move any farther forward. And there's a lot more to that story. Uh, but that was kind of God's ultimatum to me at that point in my life to um, 
move forward and talk to my wife about where I was at and talk to, talk to some uh, other people that I trusted about um, who I had been. And that was a significant turning point in my journey with Jesus. And I know I've talked with some of you who have similar stories about uh, besetting sin or, or, or different habits that you've just, you haven't been able to shake until you were um, confronted with the fact that this needs to be dealt with. And what's significant about that, I think, in today's story is that in my life, God was calling me into a kind of relationship with him and a trust in him that up until that point I was unwilling to have. There was a part of my life that was segregated, that was separate, that I didn't, that I didn't trust him with. And his very direct and confrontational words to me were necessary to get me to soften to him. He was requiring me in those moments, in those days, to release control. I didn't know what would happen if I started sharing these things with others. thought it might go badly for me, and I had to be able to release that to him. And I think that this is probably at some level or another, or another a sort of experience that we've probably all as Christians in some form either been through or need to go through at least once in our journey with Jesus. Um, it's an encounter that we see in many of God's people throughout the scriptures, and it is what Jacob is going to walk through in our text this morning. Jacob's going to experience a few things that are calling him into a deeper relationship of trust with God, and I've got five of them I want to look at this morning. Uh, we're going to take a look at God's grace. We're going to take a look at fear, um, Jacob's humility, self-reliance, and surrender. So let's start with God's grace. Verse 1, Jacob went on his way, and God's angels met him. When he saw them, Jacob said, this is God's camp. So he called that place Mahanaim. So for the last 20 years, this day has probably haunted Jacob. I'm going to have to face my brother. I cheated him. I stole from him. And when I ran away from him, he wanted to kill me. How is this going to go down? What's going to happen? And Jacob has entered back into the promised land. He knows that this conversation is coming. And this is this kind of bookend experience for him. If you remember 20 years ago when he left his family, he slept and had a vision of angels going about their business, going up and down a stairway to heaven. And now that he returns to the land, he sees an encampment of angels. And this time, they're not busy about God's work. They're camped with him, presumably for his protection. And this is an example of God's grace towards Jacob. It's this signal that God is there to take care of him. God just defended him against his uh, father-in-law, Laban, and he can defend him against Esau. This is, this is a really important thing for us to wrap our minds around. It's so important that it's, it's the reason we named our church Revelation Church, this, this idea that, that God is always the one initiating. He's always the one that moves first. He's always leading with his grace. And this is, if you're a Christian here this morning, this is how you became a member of the family of God because God drew you out with his kindness and his love for you. And maybe this morning, I don't know all of you, maybe you're not a Christian, but this is what God is doing in your life right now. He is pursuing you with grace. He's pursuing you with kindness, with love, with mercy. Maybe you're ignoring him. 
but that's what he's doing. He's there calling you in kindness. Charles Spurgeon tells this story. He says, a minister called upon a poor woman intending to give her help, for he knew that she was very poor. With his money in his hand, he knocked at the door, but she did not answer. He concluded she was not at home and went his way. A little after, he met her at the church and told her that he remembered her need. I called at your house and knocked several times, and I supposed you were not at home, for I had no answer. At what hour did you call, sir? It was about noon. Oh, dear, she said. I heard you, sir, and I am sorry I did not answer, but I thought it was the man calling for the rent. And his point in that story is so often we see God as the man calling for the rent. Like he's, he's... got obligations for us that we need to fulfill. And it's really easy for me to spend a lot of my energy as a, as a, as a Christian and as a, as a leader in the church calling myself and the rest of us to the hard work of following Jesus. Because if we're honest, it is often hard work to follow Jesus. That we should be dying to sin and pursuing spiritual discipline and making countercultural decisions to live lives that look different from the world around us. We, we prayed a prayer of confession this morning. It's the, season, the church calendar is, is the season of Lent where we're looking at ourselves and we're interrogating our hearts and asking, where have I sinned? What do I need to repent of? And those are not bad things, but we have to remember that at the very beginning, in the middle, and all the way through the end of our life, God is pursuing us with grace, with kindness, with love, favor that we don't deserve and can't earn. And Jacob sees these angels, not because of anything that he's done, but because who God is, that he gives himself to Jacob and says, hey, I've got you. I'm protecting you. And it's a reminder of God's grace. But then we see Jacob's fear. Verse 3, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir in the territory of Edom. He commanded them, you are to say to my Lord Esau, this is what your servant Jacob says. I've been staying with Laban and have been delayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female slaves. I've sent this message to inform my Lord in order to seek your favor. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau. He is coming to meet you and he has 400 men with him. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed and he divided the people with him into two camps along with the flocks, herds, and camels. And he thought, if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, the remaining one can escape. Jacob knows that this difficult meeting needs to happen. It's hanging over his head. Esau is the barrier to the further outworking of God's plan. This needs to be sorted out, and it cannot be ignored. And this is, in my mind, this is a real props to Jacob, because I am so prone in my heart to ignore difficult conversations. I know some of you don't feel that way, but I know a lot of us would resonate with that. I was, uh, was watching a Nate Bargetsy special about, uh, he was talking about coffee at Starbucks and how like he'll go to Starbucks and they'll get his order wrong. And his solution is to walk outside and throw the coffee away and go find a different Starbucks because he's just not going to have that confrontation. And I feel that, right? Like you just, there's conflict in this relationship. I guess I'm never going to speak to that person again, right? But that's not the way it's supposed to work. And Jacob knows this, that he has to get through this conflict. He sends some servants to introduce himself back to his brother. 
And he tries to mend some things. I'm, I'm sorry, I've been held up for 20 years. I have plenty of stuff. I'm not after your stuff. I'm asking for favor or grace from you. He's experienced it from God. He's, he's asking for it from Esau. And his servants come back and they say, we found your brother. He's coming to meet you. And he's got 400 men with him. That's not good. <laughs> what could they possibly be for? Have you ever been called into a meeting with your boss and their boss is there and then someone from HR is also there? Uh-oh, what are we doing? What is this meeting for? Like there are certain circumstances where you go like, this is not good. Jacob is afraid, right? Makes sense. He's going to be attacked. His life is in danger. His whole family's lives are in danger. So he divides them into two groups, thinking like at least half of them can get away. Last week, we talked a little bit about fear and how it's typically a negative. The Bible commands us often to, to not be afraid. But fear is a useful tool. It's, it's a check engine light for our soul. Jacob's fear shows him what he loves and reminds him that he is not in control. This is a really great diagnostic question for us when we are experiencing fear. What, is, what does this fear say about what we love? How are we out of control in this situation? Where is this fear coming from? Are we not trusting when we should be? Jacob, in his fear for his family and in his lack of control, he does something really smart. He prays. And we see, we see a humility in Jacob that maybe we haven't seen before. Jacob said in verse 9, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, go back to your land and to your family and I will cause you to prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. Indeed, I crossed over the Jordan with my staff and now I have become two camps. Please rescue me from my brother Esau for I am afraid of him. Otherwise, he may come and attack me, the mothers and their children you have said, I will cause you to prosper and I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea, too numerous to be counted. I think this is really beautiful. We see in Jacob that he is, his character is changing. We've, we've tracked with him for, for several chapters now and, and there are, he is saying things in this prayer that are out of his character because he's being shaped into a new sort of person. First of all, he says that he's unworthy. And this is a real change in attitude for Jacob, right? In the last chapter, he was railing against his father-in-law for changing his wages and cheating him. When we first met him, he felt that he deserved so much that he was willing to steal and cheat for it. But at this point, he is beginning to realize that God's blessings in his life can't be earned. See, in order to earn something, there has to be a transaction both parties need to bring something to the table. This is, this is why we barter. This is the whole system of economics that we live under, right? I used to work at Qdoba, so if um, I had burritos, you had money, we could do business, right? But if you don't have money, then I don't have burritos for you. Or if you don't want burritos, then there's a problem, right? There has to be something that both of us want. So what does God need? God doesn't need anything. The, the big theology term for this is aseity. God is self-sufficient. Acts 17, Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. 
Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. See, the, the reality that we have to grapple with is that God doesn't need your love. He doesn't need your obedience or your worship or your money or your devotion or your prayers. He doesn't need anything. Sometimes we forget this and we talk about God like he's lonely or sad or needs someone to say nice things about him in order to cheer him up. But this is not true. But if God doesn't need anything from us, how can we earn things from him? How can we barter? How can we engage with him in that way? I remember a couple years ago, um, a vacuum salesman came to our house. Have you, ever, have you ever hung out with a vacuum salesman? Man, he was like 19. And uh, he was like, hey, I've got this vacuum. It's like $3,000. And uh, I'd love to show it to you. And I said, hey, man, I don't need a vacuum. And he goes, but I mean, I, I, really, I really need this job, man, and I've got a quota. Can you please let me in and show me this? Let me show you this vacuum. And I was okay, I'll, come on in. So he came in with his crazy vacuum, and he, like, dumped dirt on my floor, and he, and he, you know, he sucked it up and showed me the filter, and it was all this thing. And, and, and I said, man, that's awesome. I, I just don't need a vacuum. And he said, well, okay. What if, I, what if I cut the price to like $2,000? Say, wow, that's a really good deal, but I don't need a vacuum. Okay, well, well can, I, can I show you what the, the like upholstery attachment does on your couch? I mean, if you want to, but I don't need a vacuum. And unfortunately, that young man left without selling me a vacuum because I didn't need a vacuum. And it doesn't matter how cheap it was or how great it was, we couldn't, we couldn't work it out because I did not have a need. And if we approach God, assuming we can like barter or engage him in some kind of transaction, at some point we have to realize that there's no way to put God in my debt. God doesn't need anything. See, Jacob thought he could back in chapter 28 when, when he met God the first time. He, he told God, hey, if you fulfill your part of the deal, I will fulfill my part of the deal. We'll, we'll do business. But this time for God to bring him back to the land has come and Jacob realizes, I haven't really done anything to deserve this. I have really no part in this transaction. This has all been God's grace for me. I am unworthy of what I've been given. And so Jacob talks to God and he says, I'm unworthy and I'm afraid. And I think this is really helpful for us as we consider prayer Jacob tells God what's going on with him. And I, I feel like, and maybe you don't feel this way, but I, I feel like the fact that God knows everything prevents me from telling him things that he knows. I, I think like, you, you know all this stuff. I don't, I don't really need to say it. It seems like a waste of words. God is omniscient. This is another big theological idea. He knows everything, every possible thing that is or could be is known by God. And it seems like telling him what's going on in our lives and in our hearts, it's sort of silly, like he knows. David says this in Psalm 139, Lord, you have, stretched, or you have searched me and known me. You know, when I sit down and when I stand up, you understand my thoughts from far away. So like, what's the point? But then David also says in Psalm 69, save me, God, for the water has risen to my neck. I have sunk in deep mud and there is no footing. I've come into deep water and a flood sweeps over me. I'm weary from my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. 
See, even though David recognizes that there is nothing that God doesn't know, he still brings himself to God in prayer and says, hey, this is what's going on in my life. This is how I feel inside. These are the circumstances. This is the way people are treating me. Because prayer, more than anything, is about relationship, right? Jacob is speaking with a person, a person that he knows, that he has come to put his trust in, and he's pouring his heart out to God in this moment. And this is the posture of prayer that we are invited to take. Not because God doesn't know that we need to inform him of the situation, but because he wants us to lean into the relationship. He wants us to treat him like a person, because he is. James 4 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And I need that reminder often that, that I just think like, you know, prayer is this thing that I just, yeah, God, you figure it out, whatever. But the times where I am fruitful in my prayer life are the times where I actually like lay it out before the Lord and say, hey, this is what's going on. This is what I'm feeling. And then Jacob speaks words of trust. He tells God, this is, this is what you've promised. And he reminds him of these things. And this is another consistent feature of prayer in the Bible. You said you'd do this. It's not an exclamation of blame, but an acknowledgement of trust. It's not pride. It's not God ordering God around. It's Jacob demonstrating that he knows God's character. I believe you will keep your word, is what he says. But unfortunately, I think right after this prayer of humility, he, he kind of goes backwards, it looks like. We see this, this, this next scene starting in verse 13. He spent the night there and took a part of what he had brought with him as a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. He gives them to his slaves, and he, he sets them up in little groups and says, go to Esau with them. A little farther down, I want to appease Esau with the gift that is going ahead of me. After that, I can face him, and perhaps he will forgive me. And the, so there's a question mark. The text isn't really clear. Is this a sign of Jacob's faithlessness, or is it a sign that, that he prayed, and now he's acting? Gordon Wenham in his commentary says, the narrative leaves the question unanswered, allowing the possibility that Jacob's emotions were a mixture of faith, fear, and doubt. Does anybody ever feel that way? My emotions are a mix of faith, fear, and doubt. I don't, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I'm unsure. Whatever his motives are, Jacob throws everything that he can think of at appeasing his brother. Perhaps he will forgive me. See, Jacob's relationship with Esau is very different than his relationship to God. He owes Esau. He can maybe earn his way into Esau's favor with this gift. Sometimes I think we have a disconnect between our identity as we belong to God and our identity in relationship with others. Our security in Christ should give us security in relationship with other people, but it often doesn't. Uh, there's a great piece called The Cross and Criticism by Alfred Poirier, uh, and it talks about how our understanding of who we are in Jesus should inform the way we present ourselves to the world. He says, to claim to be a Christian 
is to agree with all God says about our sin. See, when we experience the cross of Christ, we, if we are honest with ourselves like Jacob was, we recognize that we are desperately broken people. Whatever's coming to us, we deserve it. Whatever it is that someone has against you, the cross says that they have no idea how bad it is. No matter how I hurt you by my own sin, the reality is so much worse. Jesus had to die a brutal criminal's death to pay the price for my sin. I am so unbelievably unworthy of the goodness of God. And no matter what interpersonal struggles we are having, they pale in comparison to the reality of the darkness of my heart. But Poirier goes on, he says, The cross not only declares God's just verdict against me as a sinner, but his declaration of righteousness by grace through faith in Christ. And this is the flip side of that. You, as a Christian, you have been rescued, you've been redeemed, you've been saved. There is nothing that can be held over you that God not only knows about, but wiped away in his judgment of your sin on the cross. There is no relational guilt or shame that you need to carry around anyone because God has released you from it. Even if other people want to hold things against you, you can walk free of that because you have been justified by Christ. We'll talk a little bit more about forgiveness as a process and some of the, the details of that next week when we actually see this go down in chapter 33. But Psalm 118 says this, the Lord is for me. I will not be afraid. What can a mere mortal do to me? Jacob has laid his heart out before God and recognized both his unworthiness and God's grace towards him. That he should be able to rest in that, but he hasn't quite sunk in deep enough to give him confidence to face his brother free from fear. He sends him 550 animals. That's a lot. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been around 550 animals at once. John Walton says, this gift is larger than towns were likely to pay in tribute to foreign kings. So your whole town maybe could come up with this many animals to give to like the king of Babylon or whoever was oppressing you. Jacob has a lot of wealth and he throws a lot of it at Esau. And I wonder a little bit if this is one of the dangers of wealth. See, Jacob appears to need to rely on God, but then he uses his financial resources to attempt a solution. And I think so many of us, I am definitely guilty of this. I don't give God an opportunity to be strong on my behalf because I just figure out how to pay for it and make it go away. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, a feast is prepared for laughter and wine makes life happy, and money is the answer for everything. And many of us, I think, would be like, yeah, Solomon's being sarcastic. <laughs> Jacob, what Jacob really needs to do is trust in God to provide a solution. But he's not ready to do that quite yet. And so he tries to fix it himself with his money. And he's potentially missing a chance to see God do something really great. And after all that, after all of that, like, figuring out how to make it work, 
he's still not calm. He's still not at rest. He still can't get alone and be at peace. In verse 24, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Then he said to Jacob, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob named the place Peniel, for I have seen the face, I've seen God face to face, he said, yet my life has been spared. The sun shone on him until he passed by Penuel, limping because of his hip. That is why still today the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is at the hip socket because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. So this is the weird part of the chapter, right? There's always got to be a weird part in Genesis. Jacob sends his whole family across the river. He's going to be alone, but he is restless. He is not at peace. He is not ready for God to move on his behalf. But he's exhausted all of his options. This is when God shows up. This is when God meets him. When he is at his wit's end, there is nothing left that Jacob can do to protect himself. And he is fearful, and he is anxious, and he wrestles with God. This is what's called a theophany, an appearance of God in human form. Um, This happens all the time in the Old Testament. God is simultaneously in heaven, and he also appears in a visible way on earth. Some theologians would say that this is actually the the Son of God, pre-incarnate. But either way, we see that this is This is Yahweh showing up in Jacob's life in a visible way, and they wrestle. And as weird as that sounds on a surface, that is such a perfect picture of what so many of us go through, isn't it? We are not simply willing to give ourselves over to God in faith, so we fight. We wrestle. We wrestle with his plan, with his goodness, with his care for us. Maybe we even wrestle to believe that he exists. Um, but he's there for it, right? God shows up to wrestle. Why is that? I think it's because wrestling is is really intimate, isn't it? I watched some college wrestling this week. I'm not typically a college wrestling person, but I watched some YouTube videos. Um, You start a college wrestling match with your face like right up in front of the other guy's face. Like that's where it starts. And then it gets more intimate from there. (laughs) Right? Like there's two grown men in tight, tight clothes moving all over the place. (laughs) It's not debate club. It's really, really intimate. Jacob needs to get to the bottom of this in his heart. Can I really trust you, God? I want to, I need to, but can I? But he's not going to quit. He's not going to give in. He's not going to submit. 
He's holding on to his self-sufficiency. He fights. John Walton says the ease with which uh, God inflicts physical damage on Jacob indicates that any inability must be in the spiritual arena, not the physical one. If the wrestler is unable to overcome Jacob spiritually, it's because Jacob is not willing to yield. I've talked before about um, my family's time um, running a childcare center for about five years. We had a, a fairly large childcare facility, and, and one of the things that I was often tasked with was discipline. And there would be a little, you know, four-year-old boy who was just out of control. He was kicking and hitting and doing whatever, and they'd send him to my office because I was scary. And he would show up, and I'd, I'd learn a little bit from his teacher about what was going on, and then I'd have him sit on a chair, but he wouldn't want to sit on a chair because he was mad, and he'd come at me. And he'd, just, he'd just run, and he'd punch, and he'd kick, and and, you know, I, there were times when I wanted to, like, show him how silly that was. But I wasn't allowed to do that. That's against the law. Um, <laughs> and, and you just, you know, kind of, there were some times where it got to the kind of comical cartoon where you're just kind of holding the kid's head and he's swinging and, like, he can't quite reach you because his arms are too short. And they just wouldn't give up until they were exhausted. He was just going to fight me and fight me and fight me. And I was just going to be there letting him fight me until he was ready to stop. And this is what God is doing with Jacob. It gets to the point that God just reaches over and dislocates his hip with a touch. And he still won't give up. Jacob is, is desperate Hosea 12 says, Jacob struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. I wonder if you've ever been there with God. Is your relationship with God always just real prim and proper and formal? Or have you ever like wrestled with God? Gotten on your hands and knees or, or walked out into the woods or sat in your car and just unloaded yourself to him? I just, I know some of the most important parts of my relationship with God over the years have involved me sitting in my car just screaming at the top of my lungs, weeping and yelling about whatever it is that's going on. I talk to a lot of people who are struggling, and one of the things that I recommend is, is to spend time in the Psalms. Because you realize pretty quickly when you read David's words that he is wrestling with God. He is laying it out there. Some of the Psalms you, you read and you're like, wow, if that wasn't in the Bible, I would guess we probably weren't allowed to say that to God. But God is there for it because he wants depth of relationship with all of us. And sometimes that means wrestling. Jacob finally gets to this place in this wrestling match where he is willing to trust God. He says, bless me. I need you to bless me. And he says, what is your name? The last time Jacob was asked to identify himself, he lied. 
He deceived his father. He said his name was Esau. Now he's honest. He says, my name is Jacob. I am a deceiver. Maybe for the first time, he's being honest with himself. And God gives him a new name. Israel means he struggled with God. Every time God gives somebody a new name, it's symbolic of giving him a new identity. Jacob finally has laid down his deception and his scheming. He struggled with God and he has finally surrendered to him. Love this line from John Calvin. He says, He having challenged us to this contest at the same time furnishes us with the means of resistance so that he both fights against us and for us. For while he lightly opposes us, he supplies invincible strength whereby we overcome. See, God knows that we're not going to be people who are going to be able to walk into the life of blessing that he has for us if we are clinging to our own self-reliance. If we're going to be free to live into whatever calling he has as Christians, we need to be totally surrendered to Christ. And if we belong to him, he will make sure that that happens. And if it means that he needs to wear us out fighting him, that's what he's going to do. But he also provides the resources to transform our hearts to be able to trust him more deeply. We see that in Jacob's life. God, God is both the source of his fight and the source of his blessing. And when we come to a place where we can trust God with everything that we are and everything that we have, it changes the way we can interact with other people. Because then we can draw on that relationship that we have with Christ. Gordon Wenham says, if he survived his meeting with God, he will survive his meeting with Esau. And this is what we'll look at in the next chapter when they actually meet face to face. And we'll talk about the process of forgiveness. But throughout this this day and a half period in Jacob's life, he experiences the grace of God afresh. He experiences fear recognizing that he's out of control of the situation. He responds for a time in humility, in prayer, in a beautiful prayer to the Lord that he gives himself to God, but that self-reliance sparks back up as he tries to use his own resources to make it work. And it finally, after wrestling all night long, he finally surrenders whatever God has for him. I think the question for us this morning is, is where are we? Maybe, maybe you feel like you're at one or all of those places in your life at once. I know that I've experienced those things multiple times as I've journeyed with Jesus. <laughs> and sometimes, sometimes we, we get to a place of surrender and everything feels really great and awesome and the future looks amazing and God is good and then we just kind of slip away from that. Go back into self-reliance or, or fearfulness or forget his grace. We leave a place of surrender, but Jesus is so faithful to bring us back to it, even even if sometimes he has to wrestle us back to it. And it's this point where God wants all of us 
to be, completely surrendered to him. And he loves us enough to make sure that we get there. Even if he has to dislocate our hip to do it. So let's do some Q&R. Couldn't Jacob's bribes also be seen as contrition and reparations for legitimately wronging his brother, repenting before asking forgiveness? Yeah, I think that's really um, insightful. We're going to get into it in the next chapter, but Jacob, I think, has a real sense that he has wronged his brother. He has taken the blessing away, and he's trying to give some of it back. Um, I think that's definitely an element of what's going on, and uh, there's going to be an exchange in chapter 33 where that kind of goes down officially. Um, so I think there's... I, I think the line that I think was from Gordon Wenham, where the text is is unclear enough to make you go like... What exactly is going on here? And, and I think I appreciate the fact that my motives are often mixed. And while there's probably a sense in which he's um, recognizing his own sin against his brother and trying to make good on it, uh, he's also trying to leverage something that he has control over to find peace, which doesn't work out, which leads to the whole wrestling match. But yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think you could see it both ways. It's a good question. That's the only question. All right, cool. <laughs> We're going to take communion. Um, like we do every week. We, uh, we sing a song called Rock of Ages. In that song, one of the lines is, Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross. I cling. This is the, the cross of Christ is the life of God that is given to us through Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the thing that we are to hold on to, to lean on. And the bread and the cup representing Christ's broken body and shed blood is, is not just like the beginning of our salvation, it is the centerpiece of our salvation. It's not something that we can ever afford to move on from. This place of surrender that we finally found Jacob in is a place that we're called to live in, not a place that we're called to pass through. And as we remember the shed body and broken blood of Jesus, we are invited again to, to center our identity on the cross of Christ. Not just, not just acknowledge it, that that was the thing that I experienced back then that I made it through and now I've gone to bigger and better things. There are no bigger and better things than the cross of Christ. And as we take the bread and the cup, we are uh, proclaiming our surrender to the kingship of Jesus. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church 
at revelationcda.com.